0: The ROI of Supply Chain Agility. Newly proposed labor laws may impact independent drivers. And a new trend in distribution, multi-level facilities. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the group editorial director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Signode. You've designed, tested, produced. We'll protect it from here. The Signode team of technical and service professionals will be on-site at PAC Expo International in Chicago. So come see how the Signode process and products deliver optimal outcomes for customers, protecting their automation investments. Visit the Signode and PAC Expo booths S3742 and N6015 October 23rd through 26th. And again, that's at PAC Expo in Chicago. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, the past two years of pandemic and economic uncertainty revealed many weaknesses in our supply chains and pointed to the need for greater agility. But while everyone seeks supply chain agility, what's the reality in the market? And are companies as diversified and resilient with their supply chains as they should be? To find out, I recently spoke with Dan Pelathy, an assistant professor at Grand Valley State University's Seedman College of Business. He teaches supply chain and operations management at the graduate and undergraduate level and has been doing some research into the ROI of supply chain agility. Here's our conversation. Thank you, Dan. We appreciate you being with us on Logistics Matters today.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the origins of the study? I know it was a collaborative effort between you and several other academics.
1: Yes, uh, the research originated out of the University of Tennessee's Global Supply Chain Institute. Um, It's a collaborative uh, study with both other academics and um, a number of industry sponsors. Uh, We've been working on this now for, for two years and have had well over... conversations, I would guess, um, with senior supply chain executives and uh, senior leadership in other areas of companies across a a number of different areas. So it's been a really rich uh, conversation.
0: Now, Dan, of course, everybody desires supply chain agility and thinks it's a great idea, but what is the reality in the market?
1: So that's a great question. We went into this research thinking we were going to find best practices in supply chain agility, Um, But very quickly, we realized that that was not going to be the case. Instead, we found that companies were very uneven in their thinking and their activities as it relates to agility. Um, Some companies were just starting their journey, facing a lot of the barriers that we identify in the white paper. Other companies were doing some really innovative things. But even in those more innovative companies, the thinking across functional areas and at different levels of the organization was quite mixed. Um, so I would say that um, supply chain agility is definitely a topic of conversation in organizations. Um, and now is the time for supply chain managers to make the case. Um, uh, and I think we have a lot of good stuff in the white paper to help people do that.
0: Dan, what are the questions that companies should be asking themselves about their agility?
1: So leadership need, teams need to ask themselves some some t- tough questions as they start to um, dig into supply chain agility. Um, That includes something, questions like, is our organization focused on incremental cost reductions, but at the same time missing opportunities to engage the market? Uh, Does our organization put up barriers to investing in supply chain agility? And that might include using valuation methods that are based on net present value and other kinds of valuation techniques that negatively bias against agility projects. also, uh, is our organization able to identify targets target areas for investment? Uh, digging into these questions helps companies start to expose some of the structural barriers that may be holding back improvements in agility. And then at a more systematic level, leadership teams can use supply chain audits by external experts or self-assessment tools like the one in the white paper to judge where they are in their agility journey and um, think about different areas where they could start to make investments.
0: Of course, our supply chains have been so lean the past few decades that most view adding any kind of agility as something that will increase their costs. So how do you sell that notion of change to upper management if it is more costly?
1: So, Dave, I think you've hit on the biggest challenges that managers face when talking about agility. Too often, companies view investments in supply chain agility simply as expenses and managers are penalized for increasing costs if those investments don't yield an immediate return. But what that approach doesn't capture is that there are losses that companies face from disruptions, which are significant. And more importantly, traditional methods of uh, evaluation don't capture missed opportunities that come about with market changes, but the companies are not prepared to capitalize on because they haven't made the agility investments in advance. So a key problem here is that supply chain leaders have been approaching agility with the wrong set of tools. Traditional budgeting techniques like payback period or internal rate of return, net present value, they typically translate uncertainty in the environment into more aggressive discount rates, which while ignoring managers ability to positively influence outcomes after an investment. So that results in viable projects getting shelved due to overly pessimistic valuations. Um, we talk in the white paper a lot about managers needing to expand their toolkit of how they value agility investments. Uh, one topic, one technique that we cover in the white paper is valuing agility in terms of real options. Um, so there's real options uh, analysis. And having that kind of a mindset can provide companies with the flexibility to acquire, expand or abandon agility assets as market conditions change. And that essentially gives managers an opportunity to improve returns on an investment over time.
0: Since we're talking about return on investment, what are companies typically find an acceptable ROI for their agility investments?
1: So that's a great question. That there too, there's a lot of um, diversity across companies that we've talked to in terms of what their ROI is. And again, uh, we we were at, we advocate in the white paper that ROI. Is maybe not the appropriate investment uh, kind of metric for agility projects. Um, uh, The central, I mean, I would say more broadly, companies need to kind of flip the script on how they think about investing in agility. Uh, The central questions need to be how much agility is appropriate given the dynamics of our market? And then what are the investments we need to make in order to create that level of agility? So these are really strategic questions related to the overarching goals of the company. And to answer them, companies need to continuously work at scanning their environment, making seed investments and building flexibility. Um, however, in most companies, supply chain managers under intense pressure to justify any agility investment with an immediate return, that really does um, uh, put pressure on managers. And as I mentioned, these pressures are often driven by, like you were saying, the I, you know, an internal rate of return or traditional budgeting techniques that just simply kind of assume an average expected cash flow over the life of a project, but in a dynamic environment, that assumption doesn't make sense, um, and and it also doesn't take into account managers' abilities to make follow-on decisions that could um, improve the invest the return outlook for an investment after uh, an initial investment has been made. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a complex problem um, and, it, and it's one that faces these kind of very deep uh, structural types of challenges um, when you're trying to uh, move people away from, for instance, using an IRR or an NPV type calculation. It takes a lot of work and a lot of collaboration um, across functional areas.
0: I agree. That makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the common barriers to agility that companies face?
1: Yeah, I mean, after two years of talking with execs on this, um, we've come to the conclusion that there are really three main areas where companies struggle when it comes to supply chain agility. First is how to think about supply chain agility. That really means basically defining agility for your company and establishing what we call an agility mindset in your team. The second is how to make the business case for internal stakeholders, And that includes some of the challenges I mentioned earlier with um, um, doing the valuation. And then third, how to develop agile relationships with external stakeholders. Um, One of the things I will mention here is that uh, companies really need to be thinking about their end to end supply chain as they invest in agility. Focusing exclusively about what's going on in your own four walls is just it's not going to be enough.
0: Your white paper identifies three categories of agility investments digital, physical, and process agility. Can you briefly describe what each means and how companies should address these specific areas?
1: Absolutely. So, leading companies we talked with were thinking about agility as a portfolio of investments across those three broad areas you mentioned digital agility, physical agility, and process agility. And for any company, s- Particular company supply chain agility is going to require some combination of investments across those areas with the right mix depending on how a company's strategy and operating environment looks. So, under digital agility, the real opportunity areas for investment include data integrity, visibility tools, cognitive analytics, and human resource skills, and fast information flows that are going to facilitate quick decision cycles. Those are the real gains that companies can make um, in terms of digital agility. With physical agility, we're talking more about flexible physical capacity, automation, strategic working capital and inventory investments, um, and product simplification and SKU rationalization. And then finally, with process agility, we're thinking about kind of cross-functional alignment through world-class SNOP and really, really focusing on cycle time compression and then supplier and lead time compression. Overarching all that is the, the imperative of building, again, what we call kind of a, uh, an agility mindset, a culture of agility, a culture of risk-taking and understanding these investments as agility in terms of a risk-reward framework.
0: How do you recommend a company start the journey? I'm a big believer in getting
1: straight on what a company is trying to achieve before going out and starting new projects. And in particular, in the supply chain space, and Dave, you know this as well as anyone, there's just a lot of jargon out there that can confuse issues of what supply chain really really means. Um, so I would start with a strong understanding of supply chain agility, and, and here's how I define it. Um, Supply chain agility reflects how quickly a company can adjust operations to avoid disruptions, while at the same time capitalizing on opportunities in a changing environment. So agility means more than just mitigating the downside effects of a problem after it's occurred. Instead, it means proactively investing in internal capabilities and external relationships so as to provide alternatives to managers that are facing a highly uncertain environment. That means discussions around agility should be less about accurately predicting a particular risk event and more about building response capabilities. And those investments, again, need to be seen as true investments, not just expenses. Those investments have payoff probabilities, they impose opportunity costs, they can fluctuate in value relative to environmental conditions, um, which means those are the kinds of things that need to drive the conversation. Uh, and finally, you know, the investments in supply chain agility should focus on holistic solutions for matching supply and demand, and should therefore be evaluated really against company performance. Uh, and when you have that understanding as a foundation for discussions on agility, then companies can really move forward on deciding which of the investment areas to target for maximum gain.
0: That sounds like a good path to proceed on. How can others find information about your research?
1: So as I mentioned, the research was conducted through the University of Tennessee's Global Supply Chain Institute. The white paper can be downloaded for free at the GSCI website, which is supplychainmanagement.utk.edu. Um, we also have a second white paper white paper on supply chain agility, agility coming out later this year. And, of course, folks can always contact me directly through my Grand Valley State University email address, or they can find me on LinkedIn.
0: Thank you, Dan. We've been talking to Dan Palathi. He's an assistant professor at Grand Valley State University's Seidman College of Business. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Thanks so much, Dave.
0: Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. Victoria, you wrote this week on the Labor Department's proposed rule that could change how independent contractors are classified, and that could affect independent truck drivers. What can you tell us?
2: That's right, Dave. Yeah, so this week, the Department of Labor announced a proposed independent contractor rule that, as you say, could potentially uh, reclassify millions of workers um, as employees, The department announced the proposal on Tuesday and it was published in the Federal Register Thursday. Essentially, the proposal presents a new set of guidelines that employers would use to classify workers either as independent contractors or employees, and it could affect a wide range of industries including trucking, which as we all know relies heavily on independent contractors. So this is something the industry will be watching very closely. In a nutshell, the DOL's proposal would rescind the, uh, what's known as the 2021 Independent Contractor Rule, and that's a Trump-era policy that is widely viewed as favorable toward classifying workers as independent contractors. The new proposal would replace that rule with one that is viewed as more likely to classify workers as employees. Uh, the current policy uses a five-factor test for employees to determine that status, with two factors receiving greater weight, and those two factors make it easier to point in the direction of independent contractor, most uh, people agree. The new rule proposes a six-pronged test with factors weighed equally, Essentially, uh, that loosens the classification guidelines and favors employee status, according to the experts I spoke to. There's a lot more to it involved than that, but that's, like I say, in a nutshell. Industry associations and legal experts have been weighing in on all this, of course. Um, The National Retail Federation spoke out right away, calling it an unnecessary proposal that will only lead to confusion and potential litigation. The American Trucking Associations and the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, which are two transportation industry groups that we cover quite frequently, they also provided brief statements on the issue. Both said they are still reviewing the proposal, but expressed concerns about undoing the current rules, arguing that they that the current rule brought needed clarity to the issue. I also spoke to transportation industry lawyer, Greg Feary, He's with the law firm uh, Scopolitis, Gargan, Light, Hansen, and Theory, which is a nationwide practice focused on the transportation industry. And he said the change represents a shift away from the in- independent contractor model and is therefore something industry stakeholders should be watching very closely over the next uh, few months. As an aside, I said that ATA and OOIDA, the two um, transportation and driver groups, are still reviewing the proposal. It is a 184-page document, so there's a lot to get through, and therefore, you know, I think we'll see more details uh, to be revealed. And full disclosure, I have not read the full proposal either.
0: Yeah, well, I have not either, but uh, (laughs) I'm sure it is rather long and quite complex, so it's something we will continue to cover But Where does the issue stand right now, and how likely is it that this change will take effect?
2: Yeah, good questions. Um, We are in a 45-day public comment period now, so stakeholders have until November 28th to comment or provide feedback on it. After that, the Labor Department reviews the feedback and can issue a final rule, but this is likely to linger into 2023, according to the experts I spoke to. Fury, for one, says he wouldn't be surprised if the public comment period is extended beyond 45 days, really just due to the significance of the issue to so many um, industries, employers, and workers. He also said it's likely we'll see a lot of legal back and forth over the next few months, and that he wouldn't expect to see a final rule until late spring or early summer of next year. And of course, at that point, you know it would take time for the enforcement bodies to get up to speed on the change, pushing enforcement into late 2023, given that uh, 2024 would be right around the corner. And as a presidential election year, there's also potential for a new administration to make further changes if that were to happen. So all of this makes it really hard to predict the long-term ramifications of the proposal. Still, uh, industry employers and workers, especially truck drivers, will want to stay on top of uh, what's happening here. And they can do that via their trade associations and legal representatives, of course, but we'll also be uh, reporting on it as it unfolds.
0: We certainly will. And of course, it could have a huge impact on trucking and also the last mile delivery industries, such as those who use crowdsourcing, the Uber delivery services and some of those others. So we'll stay on it. Absolutely. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. And Ben, for years, distributors in parts of the world where land is scarce, like Europe and Japan, have built multi-story warehouses to make use of the land more efficiently. We've not seen a lot of multi-floor facilities in the U.S. until just recently. And you wrote this week about that now being a growing trend. Can you tell us where it's happening and why?
2: Yeah, I'm glad
3: to. Um, As you alluded to, warehouse builders in this country have traditionally constructed these sprawling uh, one level distribution centers or fulfillment centers in rural areas uh, where there's cheap land and lots of labor and uh, close to interstate highways with uh, ease of uh, reach to the exits. Um, But that approach has started slowly to come under pressure lately uh, due to some trends. Of course, we're seeing really historically low unemployment rates uh, and rising demand for next day and sometimes same day e-commerce fulfillment. So if you can move those DCs closer to the urban centers where most of the people are, uh, then you can store the inventory closer to the buyers and get quicker package delivery um, and also access uh, to more potential employees. So the latest evidence that we've seen uh, is Chicago, Uh, a developer just this week said that they've broken ground on what they called uh, the city's first multi-story warehouse. Uh, That's being built by the appropriately named Logistics Property Company. And they said the site will have uh, a ground floor uh, that has 28 dock doors and two drive-in doors for trucks. And upstairs, full-size trucks, so they're hauling, you know, 53-foot trailers, can access also uh, separate up and down ramps, uh, double-wide, to access another 28 dock doors up on that second story and two drive-in doors. Um, so th- this is different from, you know, th- they're multi-story warehouses that, that um, perhaps have been around in the past with that might have elevators to move uh, inventory or spiral conveyors to move them between floors. Uh, But now we're talking about actually the trucks uh, getting right up on that second floor.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting design, including, uh, as you mentioned, allowing the trucks to access that upper floor. Are you seeing more examples of different kinds of designs and and multi-level facilities in other urban areas?
3: Uh, Yeah, yeah, there there are a lot of different ways to do this. Um, You know, the, the, the numbers aren't big yet, but the sizes of these places are big, that's Stands to reason if you've got full size trucks driving around. uh, Obviously, it's got to be a a very large floor size. Uh, So, one of these examples is a multi story warehouse in the Bronx uh, in New York City, and that's currently under construction. uh, A company called Arco Design Build. Uh, They're looking at completion in the summer of 2023, a little less than a year from now. Uh, The JLL uh, real estate firm is already leasing space in that. The facility uh, has almost 600,000 square feet of warehouse space, Um, and again, direct tractor-trailer access to those two warehouse floors. Uh, There's a woman, Leslie Lane, who's Executive Managing Director at JLL, which is leasing that space, and she said the Bronx Logistics Center is delivering to the market as the industrial sector in general, and Last Mile in particular, continue to see unprecedented pressure from undersupply. She's talking about real estate space. Uh, And with record-breaking demand for last touch speed to market logistics, they're seeing strong interest in filling the space. Uh, And then another example happens also to be in New York. Uh, This one involves Amazon, uh, predictably, if we're talking about e-commerce. So they have leased a three-story DC, that's in the Red Hook sector of Brooklyn, another borough of New York, uh, that covers about 500,000 square feet. Uh, that one's owned by cbre uh, obviously another uh familiar real estate group uh they had bought the property for 330 million dollars uh just in june a few months ago uh from the dh property holdings and goldman sachs um and deal uh that one was brokered by cushman wakefield so a lot of these you know top line names you know major uh companies uh, that, that that have been you know big players for a long time in our sector um so that the number of sites uh, not big yet, but the uh, the footprints are really significant, and uh, and obviously they're in some really prime real estate uh, where this could touch a lot of our of our listeners and and retailers that serve them.
0: Yeah, I think the interesting thing is the size of these facilities. We've seen multi-store facilities before, but never never the uh, the large footprints that these buildings will have. So it will be interesting to see if these uh, kind of facilities will continue to grow as we want faster delivery in these urban markets. Thanks, Ben.
3: Yep, glad to do it.
0: We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. And check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. And our thanks to Dan Pelathy of Grand Valley State University for being our guest. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. And speaking of subscribing, check out our sister podcast series, Supply Chain in the Fast Lane. It's co-produced by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Supply Chain Quarterly. Our new season just started earlier this week with new episodes each Tuesday that focus on attracting and retaining labor in our supply chains. Subscribe to Supply Chain in the Fast Lane wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Signode. we have designed, tested, produced. We'll protect it from here. The Signode team of technical and service professionals will be on-site at PAC Expo International in Chicago. So come see how Signode process and products deliver optimal outcomes for customers, protecting their automation investments. Visit Signode in PAC Expo Boost S3742 and N6015 That's October 23rd and 26th at PAC Expo in Chicago. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistic Matters, so be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.